You're listening to sermon audio from Piperton Baptist Church in Piperton, Tennessee. For more information on how you can get connected with PBC, please visit www.pipertonbaptist.com. I want y'all to go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Oh my goodness. That's a lot of kids. We better break open this passage pretty quick this morning, y'all. All right, we're going to look today at a, at a confounding Christian, a man who, who made people marvel. He was a legend, and his story may be more like yours than you think. Acts chapter 9, verse 1, we're going to read this story together. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest And he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you'll be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul for behold, he is praying and he has seen in a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry out my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. I want to ask uh, Karen to come. Karen Witten Johnson. <laughs> and I ask her to pray for God's mercy and grace on our message. Let's pray. Father, I just praise your holy name. I thank you for your grace, your mercy, and your forgiveness. I thank you for this church and the people in this church and for bringing Chad and I to this church. Prepare our hearts for today's message and help us to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Karen. 
right now. Many of you know, uh, may know this, that Acts 9, this passage that we just read, is just one account of Paul's testimony of salvation. There are, there are other accounts of this uh, in Acts 22, uh, 6 through 21, Acts 26, 9 through 25. Then there's a little bit smaller one in Galatians 1, 11 through 24, and then a little tiny one in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 8. Pretty much every time Paul got to share his story, he told uh, his own personal testimony. So if I reference one of those accounts, it's, it's just to highlight a particular detail that Luke may not have included in the, the first one in Acts 9. All right? Same true story, no contradictions, just different audience and context. All right? Now, I, I know uh, Paul wrote about and y'all, many of you know this, that Paul wrote about half of the New Testament. But he really just wrote about half of the New Testament books, to be honest. Technically, Luke wrote the most, if you want to go by words. I think Luke wrote 27%, and Paul wrote 25%, and then third was John. I think he wrote 17%, and then the rest kind of pick up the last 40%. I know y'all really wanted to know that this morning. But my point is that we tend to take these epic figures of the Bible, like Abraham and Moses in the Old Testament and like Paul in the New Testament, and we see them as on another plane of Christianity, right? I mean, there's like, we think like there's small, medium, large Christians, uh, large faith Christians. I'm not talking about weight. I'm talking about faith, all right? You're like, yeah, uh-huh. So, uh, but, but then there's every now and then we bump into the guy who owns the Coca-Cola bottling company or whatever. You know what I mean? We, we like, they're another plane. It's like asking Jeff Bezos uh, who does his yard work, right? Who cares? You can't afford his yard man, all right? So why even ask, right? And so we tend to think about uh, people like Paul that way. I actually haven't heard lots of sermons on Paul. We've heard lots of sermons from books he's written, but not on him himself. Uh, you know, he saw Jesus. He, was, he, he wrote scripture. He died for Christ. You know, let's go back. If we're going to do this failure isn't fatal thing, let's go back to David's affair, right? Let's go back to Rahab's prostitution or Peter's denial or the woman at the well. I can relate a little more there, right? But Paul, I mean, he's out there. He, he, he's on another plane. Well, if you think that way, I want you to just hold your horses this morning because I believe from the scriptures we can prove that Paul's a lot more like you and you're a lot more like him than you think, right? First, let's find Paul's life at the place God revealed himself to him. What was Paul up to? And this is my first point this morning. Come straight out of the scriptures. He was still breathing threats and murder. Acts 9, verse 1, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's the Christian movement of, of followers of Christ, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, he's, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. Paul was actively on his way to persecute Christians when Jesus found him. By the way, let's stop saying the phrase, I found Jesus. Jesus was never lost. You didn't find him, all right? He found you. Acts chapter 26, verse 9. I myself was convinced, Paul says, that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them, often in all the synagogues, and tried to make them blaspheme. 
Say it. Speak against Jesus. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. He hunted them down. In this connection, he says, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. That is precisely on his way where Jesus chose to meet him. Of course, Paul was called Saul then, but I'm going to refer to him as Paul throughout this passage. Be a preacher, you know, that's, but that's different. You know, that that was like real murder. I mean, Paul held Stephen's clothes while he was being stoned to death. I would never, ever do something so vile. Oh, really? Way back in Leviticus 19, verse 17, the Bible says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the holy name of God, Yahweh. Matthew 5, verse 21, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the fires of hell. I think it's from that great 1976 commentary, Fleetwood Mac, that come these words. That song, don't you? Some of don't get your lighters out yet. This isn't a concert. Yeah. What? Don't like the song. It's a wonderful song. Packing up, shacking up. Uh huh. That's what it says. Yeah. <laughs> Y'all think I'm crazy right now, don't you? Oh, wow. Hey, I did see some of y'all start to get out your lighters, and I was like, hey, y'all just back it down a little bit. This isn't 1978, all right? You're not at a concert. Hey, listen, did you know that the lyrics of that song, I played that for a reason. (laughs) Those lyrics have been played on Spotify 625 million times. Yeah. (laughs) It was written and sung by, you know, Mr. Lindsey Buckingham, and it was the band's uh, Fleetwood Mac's uh, first top 10 hit in the U.S. Rolling Stone magazine ranked it one of the top songs of all time. It was ranked as the band's number one song. And you know when that song came out, it was going to come out in 1977, but they wanted to push it back to Christmas to try to make sales at Christmas. And it sold 800,000 pre-orders. It was the largest advanced sell in Warner Brothers history at that time. The album that that song's on sold over I think 40 million copies. It's one of the top 10 highest selling albums in history. Why is that? Because <laughs> I think people relate to that phrase, you can go your own way. It's like carry on my wayward son. You know, with can- it's popular because people relate to it. Did you know that in Acts chapter 9 verse 2 it says that if he found any belonging to the way, that's the Christian movement, that, that word for way there is the word hodos. It, it's a progress, a route. Figuratively, that word meant a, a means or a mode in a journey. 
which is Jesus Christ. No one comes to the Father except by me. That was the way. But when it refers to Paul being on his own way in verse 3, it's the word uh, peruomai from, from poros, meaning passageway, to move something from one destination to another. And figuratively there, it meant to depart. And it emphasized the personal meaning which is attached to reaching my own particular destination. Paul was headed his own way. <laughs> he had a personal destination in mind, and it was not in the direction of the Lord. Church, let me just ask you, do you have a destination? You have one, right? What's your, what's your destination today? Is it lunch at noon? Got to get your nails did tomorrow? Huh? Maybe late day next, next Saturday? I'm not against any of those things. But you need to have a destination spiritually. We map out our summer vacations. We look a year in advance for Thanksgiving, uh, you know, uh, holidays. And yet we have no spiritual destination. Well, Paul had one. It was just in the opposite direction. We need to prioritize God's destinations. And just as a side note, I, I love, I always love to point out in Paul's testimony that Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? Christians need to know that when we come against another child of God, we're coming against Jesus. All right? Now, that brings fear to those who are doing it and, and comfort to those who are the victim. He says, Saul, Paul, had never laid a finger on Jesus. He had never seen him. Remember? But yet Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Because you're persecuting my people. You're persecuting the church. These are my children. And when you touch them, you touch me. And you need to know that. You need to let the fear of God come into people when you speak against God's people. I've seen it. I've seen the wrath of God poured out. And I'm fearful sometimes in my own heart when I want to gossip or say something I should, shouldn't about another. The way we treat each other may not seem like the extremes of Paul, but the Bible says hatred is murder. No, preacher, don't say that. Yeah, it does. 1 John 3, verse 15 doesn't get much plainer than this. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Verse 16. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. You can try to burn that passage out of the scriptures, but it's there and it's not going anywhere. Well, I don't hate them. I just want to hurt them real bad. <laughs> you know, it's interesting to me that our culture often takes biblical thought and we recategorize it. You know, many of us have seen the bumper stickers or the things on the back of the helmets and people's jerseys, stop hate. And what's ironic about this, it's kind of like, you know, the rainbow. We take it and use it for ungodly purposes. It's God's promise, not man. And, you know, it's, it's from the Lord. We try to twist it and we take the word stop hate. And I see people actually getting mad and hateful over the word stop hate. I don't care where it's written. It's good phrase. But we take and look, um, apply it to the political situation that it represents. And we don't like it. It's like, it's like a parent uh, yelling at their kids, stop yelling. But in our yelling, we're showing our own hypocrisy <laughs> as a parent. Now, friend, listen, I don't for one minute believe that certain categories of humanity were born racist. That's unbiblical. But I'm going to tell you, before you get excited about that statement, you need to know it's actually much worse. 
We're all born wretched. We're all born sinners. We may all think, you may think that you're not a, I'm not a confrontational person. Brother, sister, yes, you are. You are confrontational. No, I'm not. I'm not. Ask anybody that knows me. Yes, you are. We may think we're not, but we are. We are active sinners. We are practicing persecution. And if you don't believe me, just listen, let the Bible say it. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, that's any sin. I don't think anybody in here, I've, I rarely meet people that say I've never sinned. I've rarely met people who say, yeah, I probably sin every day in some way. So we sin, we're unrighteous. That's what sin is, it's unrighteousness. And by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. Every single sinful thing we think or hear or say or do, every righteous act that God's commanded us to do that we don't do, is suppression of the truth of God. Now, we would never dare visualize ourselves putting our hand over the mouth of holy God. I mean, how blasphemous is that thought? But friend, Romans 1.18 says that's, that's what our sin is tantamount to, muzzling God's truth, suppressing the truth of God. Acts 9, verse 4 says, He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In Acts 26, verse 14, there's a little bit more detail there. He says, when, he, when, he had, when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And some old versions say kick against the pricks, like being pricked by uh, a bee or a, a locust or being stung by a scorpion. It could be fatal. Another meaning of that word is, is in which is, I think is more applicable here is, is an iron goad. There was an iron tip back then that they would, a sharp point that they would put on the end of a wooden stick for the, for the farmers. And they would prod the oxen with a goad to make them turn left or right. And sometimes the, the old oxen would get stubborn and kick out against the goads, piercing their own flesh with the goad. When they kicked against the goad, it hurt them. The more an animal kicked, the more it suffered. That's why Jesus says to, to Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Do you know Proverbs 15, 10 says, there is severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. Whoever hates reproof will die. Proverbs 13, 15, the way of the treacherous is their ruin. That's why you're getting the goads. That's why Paul was getting goaded, because the way of the treacherous is ruin. He was treacherous. He was on a treacherous path, and he was being goaded by God to get in the right direction, not for his own pain and suffering, but for his own pleasure. And that's the way the path that Paul and all mankind are on, apart from God's redeeming grace. <laughs> Friend, listen, hear the word of God. You may not think you're persecuting Christ, but the goads of God have been trying to direct you to repent. That just means to turn around from your direction, what you're trusting in for your salvation, and obey. And we all bear the scars of our own kicks against the Lord, don't we? One of my favorite biblical truths in all the Bible is this first point. It's, it really is. 
He was still breathing out threats and murder. It, the reason I love it so much is because it reminds me of the third verse in uh, the Romans Road. You know, the Romans Road is a series of verses from the book of Romans that describe the road or pathway to heaven. And we all know some of these. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then Romans 6.23, for the wages, the cost of that sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then my favorite in, in all of that is Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet, Christ died for us. Still sinners. It's the same thing as breathing out threats and murder. While Paul was on his way to Damascus with authority, earthly authority, to, to drive out these Christians. While he was on the path, God could have found him anywhere. He could have found him in between jobs, but that's not where he found him. He found him on that path, same place he finds us, right in the middle of our sin. While we were still sinners, while we were still hating others, while we were still wicked and rebelling against our shepherd, he was goading, goading, and we were kicking Still just wounding ourselves over and over. But praise God for the blinding light of the road to Damascus. Hmm. There's a great song called Idaho. You can look it up on Spotify. I don't even know who sings it. But the lyric of that song I love so much, it's about a 15-year-old kid who left home, ran away, and he just made his way all over the U.S., living in friends' couches and stuff like that. And he ends up in Idaho. And he says, Lord, you brought Damascus here to Idaho. Damascus is wherever you're at, and wherever you're at is sin. And that's where God finds you. Marvel at this. God loves you while you still sin against him. No, he knows it. He knows you will. He knows you would. And he still died for you. Failure doesn't have to be fatal because of that fact. Well, uh, shift gears like so many uh, testimonies of salvation, like uh, so many of our explanations of God's stories, God shows Paul the same way he still shows us, that he uses people in our lives that we would never think <laughs> he would use to guide us uh, by the Holy Spirit. And that's my second point today. Marvel at this, point two, God uses unlikely people to guide unlikely people to him. Now, obviously, Christ had already revealed himself, but Paul hadn't received the Holy Spirit yet. I do believe he, had, he was on his way to saving faith. I don't know where on that journey, if it was the moment of the blinding light that he, he put his faith fully in God, but uh, there was another outpouring of the Holy Spirit on him. Maybe it was for the empowerment of the gospel, but there were other people God chose to use in Paul's life to heal him and baptize him and disciple him. And first, uh, it was the men that Paul had been using to help him in his efforts uh, of persecuting Christians. Acts 9, verse 8, uh, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand, they being these people that were with him, and brought him to Damascus. And for three, three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So folks, I don't know if you realize this, but those men were likely being commanded and led by Paul. These, these men were probably helping Paul gather and bind the, the Christians to send them to prison. 
Those same men who did witness that light were now leading Paul, right? And three days of blindness meant three days of, of Paul being led in his every step. Step down, right? Okay, step, step up right here. Watch this, watch this log. Care, careful. By the way, it, it, it's also easy to assume that the, the blinding light that Paul and, and other, those other people experienced, it was blinding to Paul, not the others, uh, which is proof that it wasn't just uh, some natural phenomenon. Uh, one scholar put it like this. It's clear that the blindness is not a temporary natural phenomenon because in Acts 9 verse 18, it stated that Paul was blind as a result of something like scales being on his eyes. Ananias is told by the Lord that Paul is awaiting healing at his, Ananias's hands. In verse 12, and when Ananias goes to Paul, he lays his hands on him and tells him that the Lord sent him Ananias to Paul for the purpose of healing his blindness and imparting to him the Holy Spirit and the fact that none of the other people in his group were blinded. Just him. An unlikely crew to be carrying and carrying for Paul. All that strength and focus and confidence and drive that Paul put into his leadership against these Christians. Nobody messed with Paul. And now he's been emptied of all that. Hey, um, Hey guys, um, I, I need to I need to go relieve myself somewhere. Could you could you guide me to a place to do that? That's what they did. They weren't porta potties. They had to lead him over. It's humiliating. It's humbling. Well, they weren't the only ones God used. There was also Ananias, Acts 9, verse 10. says, Now uh, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said those wonderful words, Here I am, Lord. Y'all recognize those words from the Old Testament. Abraham, Genesis 22, 1. God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Jacob in Genesis 31, 11. Then the angel of God said to me in, a, in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. Samuel in uh, 1 Samuel 3, verse 4. Then the Lord called Samuel and he said, here I am. And of course, Isaiah 6, verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, Lord, send me. We always focus on Paul. <laughs> but it was little unknown Ananias who gave that, that submissively obedient response, just like those old patriarchs and prophets of old. He, he, he's a hero. Before there was Paul, there was not Barnabas. Before there was Paul, there was Ananias. Friend, listen. You didn't get where you are by yourself. Do you understand that? You may not know all the people that were involved in getting you where you are, right? But you didn't just get here. And I'm not, I mean, not even by God's word and his Holy Spirit. You got to where you are in your Christian faith. And I do believe it was the Holy Spirit and God's will. But you got here by an unknown number of obedient believers listening to the word of the Lord and saying, here I am. I'll take this gospel to England. I'll take this gospel to Europe. I'll take this gospel to South America. That's how you got here. 
I'm not talking about just your great-grandmother that knew Jesus. I'm talking about an unknown number of generations bringing the gospel filtered down through New Testament churches to right here to the, to the Kazmaraks, you know, of the, and the people who helped start this church. Hmm. Friend, marvel at this. Unlikely people guide unlikely people <laughs> to the source of eternal life. And you're one of those unlikely people. You're unlikely to be chosen, unlikely uh, to be used, and yet here you are. Well, there's one more thing to marvel at, and I'll, I'll close with this. Our unrehearsed God stories are spiritual gold mines. Let me say that again. Our unrehearsed God stories are spiritual gold mines. We pick back up in Acts 9 verse 11, and the Lord said to Ananias, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. And he went on to say, whoa, I don't know about that, God, you know, how much evil he's done. But he said, go, I've called him. So verse 17, uh, Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, uh, brother Saul, uh, the Lord who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me to you so that you may regain your sight. Yeah, no, no, no. Right? I love this. I love this. I, I, Ananias didn't even know how else to explain it. Right? Hey, look. Uh, look, Saul. I know that's weird that I know your name. But I'm sorry. Um, I mean, this was before Facebook stalking, right? This was like, you know, he didn't phone a friend. He, this was real. And he says, man, you know, I just imagine Ananias going, okay, Okay, I'm just going to do this. I'm just going to say this. And he just went in and said it. He didn't make any apologies for his crazy story. I think Ananias was probably shocked when he laid hands on him and the scales fell off his eyes. Oh, wow. Okay, that's pretty cool. My prayer worked. My, you know, it, was, it worked. Friend, listen, we need to take note. When we speak to others about a God that we cannot see, we are speaking biblical, authoritative truth. Do you understand that? It has power in it. Others may not believe or obey God's truth, but part of our role is to tell what God told us to tell. That's what Ananias did. This is what I know. This is what God said. The end. Church, listen. What was enough for Ananias and Paul should be enough for you and me. Amen? I believe Paul even actually used Ananias' own example. When Paul would go out and tell his testimony, he's like, <laughs> you know, I don't know what else to tell you. This, this is what happened. They didn't downplay it. They didn't embellish it. They just said what happened. So many Christians come to Christ through faith, wonderful, saving faith. And yet we fail to exercise that faith when we speak to others about the gospel. We just don't think. We just we get into our own minds and we think, you know, you know what? This is such a postmodern, you know, these 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 college students and all their philosophy classes, you know, all these these unbiblical belief systems, there's no way that my testimony can convince one of them. And friend, that is a lie. It's a lie from the devil that keeps you silent. It's exactly what it is. Stop underestimating the power of truth. Amen. 
You don't have to be an extroverted, smooth-talking salesman to be a gospel witness. Your testimony, backed up by the authoritative doctrines of God's holy word, are enough to bear fruit. People will marvel, some will, when we share about Christ. I'm shocked by it. I'm shocked by the power of the gospel. Pretty much everyone who heard about Paul or heard uh, Paul speak were confounded. I mean, even Ananias was. Uh, uh, he was like, I don't know about this. Acts 9.21 says, And all who heard him were amazed and said, Wait, wait a minute. Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem? And he, he, he's here for this purpose. But Paul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews. In Acts 26, verse 24, it says, When Paul was before King Agrippa... Uh, as he was uh, saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. What, what did Paul share there? The same story we read today. He just said it. This is what happened to me. You're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. Marvel at this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Marvel at that, friend. Marvel at this. God uses the most unlikely, unknown people to reach the most unknown, unlikely people who could be future giants of the faith. Some of y'all have heard the old story of Billy Graham who led who to Christ leading up to him. It starts somewhere, and it starts with your witness. And number three, don't underestimate the simple, raw, and real truth of your own gospel witness. You don't have to have all the emotions and passion backing it up all the time. Sometimes your passion's there. Sometimes you're pumped about it. Sometimes you just know you need to share it. It doesn't have to be loud. It just has to be true. Friend, the truth of the gospel is the power of God to save. God's already been calling them. You don't know what the Spirit's been up to. You can't see everything God's up to. You just need to know what you're up to. And you're supposed to be up to sharing the gospel with others. It's enough. Because failure isn't fatal. Would you stand? Father God, we love you. We praise you. We, we are like Paul. We all like sheep have gone astray. We are actively persecuting you every time we sin. We'd like to downplay it. We'd like to, to smooth it over, sand it down, and make it a little less pretty, you know, or more pretty. But we can't. Uh, we're faced, one day we'll stand face to face before you in judgment. And either the blood of Christ will redeem us for our, from our sins or we'll spend eternity in hell. So I pray God today. And if there are people in this room that have never given their hearts to Christ, they've never surrendered to the God who's already searching for them. I don't know how we could say it any clearer from the life of Zacchaeus and the sins of David and Peter and Rahab, all these things, wicked nations that you've forgiven. Surely you can forgive the person in this room who thinks they're the worst sinner. Well, you don't know, preacher. I don't have to know. God knows. And he redeemed Saul gave him a new name and set him about as the person who would probably plant more churches than anybody we know actively involved in spreading the gospel to other nations
said in Romans 15, there's no place left for me. That's, that's who you save. You save people who are actively persecuting you. So God, I pray if there's someone in here that's like that, they would cry out and say, God, save me. You save Paul, save me. I believe you died on the cross. I believe you're buried in the tomb and you rose on the third day. I don't know much more than that. I got a lot to learn. I've still got a lot of vices in my life, but I, I want to follow you, Lord. You can cry out to God and say that and he'll save you right now. I pray if there's other people in our church that are just pew potatoes, they're sitting around waiting for the day they're going to get active for God. Uh, maybe tomorrow. Maybe once I get this part of my life straightened up, I'll start to serve the Lord. But maybe today is the day you need to just stop talking about it and show up, come forward and make your commitment to this church real and be a member. Maybe you're already a believer, you've been baptized, but you want to be a member of this church be an active servant here. God would have it that way. I pray you'd be obedient to Him. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been sermon audio from Piperton Baptist Church in Piperton, Tennessee. For more information on how you can get connected with PBC, please visit www.pipertonbaptist.com.